0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host Brian Motson. I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the Book of Deuteronomy, and here the guys will be in Deuteronomy chapter 16, looking at verses 18 through 22. We have one online course that we'd like to announce and keep you aware of. This is a three-week Theopolis workshop online called Exercises in Reading and will be taught by Peter Lighthart. That'll be on three different Saturdays, October 21st, November 4th, and November 11th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Central Time. And During this miniature workshop, Peter Lighthart is going to lead students through a series of reading exercises. You're going to read lyric poetry and short stories and drama and reflect on the magic of good writing and good reading. So for more information about that course and a link to register, we have a link down there in the show notes for you. As always, we hope you enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing Deuteronomy chapter 16.
1: Welcome to the Theopas Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is recording the podcast, and we'll be editing it and smoothing it out so that it's easy for you to listen to. Uh, We are in the middle of a series of studies in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, and we're currently uh, in chapter 16 of Deuteronomy. Uh, As I've pointed out uh, repeatedly in my introductions, Deuteronomy, at least this section of Deuteronomy, is organized by the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are given to us in Deuteronomy 5 in a slightly different form than they appear in Exodus. And then from that point to chapter 26, that big section of Deuteronomy, 20-some chapters, 20 chapters or so, are organized according to the 10 words. Uh, And last time we were looking at a section of the Fourth Commandment portion of Deuteronomy. The Fourth Commandment portion is a good illustration of the way that uh, Moses deals with the 10 words. Instead of simply repeating the 10 words or expanding on details of the specifics of the 10 words, uh, Moses expands... Uh, each of the 10 words into areas that uh, are sometimes unanticipated. So the third word, it shall not uh, bear the name of the word your God in vain. Uh, that's Deuteronomy 14. And that's largely about uh, eating unclean foods. That's not an obvious connection, but that's that's where it fits into Moses' sermons. When Moses talks about the Sabbath, he doesn't give details about what you can and can't do on the, on the, on the weekly Sabbath. That's, a lot of that is left very opaque in the law. Instead, what he talks about is remission of debts, release of slaves, the festival calendar of Israel, and particularly the three major feasts that each uh, Israelite male is supposed to attend. That is the Sabbath section of, of Deuteronomy. And Moses does something similar when he gets to the fifth word. The fifth word section begins at the end of Deuteronomy 16, beginning in verse 18, where Moses says, "'You shall give, give to yourself judges and officers in all your gates.'" which Yahweh your God is giving you. Uh, that begins a new section, no longer talking about the Sabbath, but now talking about uh, rulers and uh, authorities that exist within Israel. But instead of uh, going through in a kind of casuistic way, all the things that uh, we we need to know about when we obey our parents, when we disobey our parents, how we are to honor them, uh, the particular gestures of honor that we're supposed to give to them. He doesn't go into detail there. Instead, if he expands it Instead of that, he expands the fifth word to talk about uh, all kinds of authorities other than familial authorities. Uh, the principle That's the principle we find in, for example, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, where when it talks about what's required in the fifth word, it doesn't just talk about submission to and obedience to and honor of parental authorities, but also talks about honoring quasi-parental authorities like church leaders and quasi-parental authorities in society like rulers. Uh, who have kind of a paternal care for the people? That move that we find in the Catechism is justified and legitimated by what Moses does in Deuteronomy, uh, because he he when he covers the fifth word, he talks entirely about kind of public authorities rather than familial authorities, and he covers a number of different ones. At the end of chapter sixteen, uh, he talks about judges and officers, and then he gives uh, some it gives an example of how the judges and officers rule. The judges and priests of the central sanctuary are covered in chapter 17. Laws of kingship are covered in chapter 17. Uh, chapter 18 turns to prophets and the prophetic authority and the uh, Israel's responsibility to uh, obey prophetic authority, especially the prophet the Lord will raise up like Moses. These all come under the fifth word. Obeying the verdicts and the words of judges, that's under the fifth word. Obeying a priest who makes a judgment, that's under the fifth word. Uh, a king, and uh, honoring kings, that comes under the fifth word. And the responsibilities of kings, on the other hand, also come under the fifth word. The responsibility of judges come under the fifth word. That's how this uh, section is structured. It goes from chapter 16, verse 18, through the end of chapter uh, ch- end of chapter 18, uh, where we're talking about prophets. Uh, and it moves from judges to priestly authority, to royal authority, to some additional rules about priests and Levites, and then ends with profits. A lot of this section, as we'll see, is organized by triadic structures. There are three rules, three prohibitions, uh, three sets of categories of things that uh, run through the whole thing. If we, if we look at this overall structure, this is often called uh, uh, the constitutional section of the book of Deuteronomy because it's covering the kinds of things that we find covered in modern constitutions. Uh, designated uh, particular offices, like the American Constitution designates uh, three branches of government uh, and designates particular offices in the three branches, the, the things that those three branches are responsible for, the qualifications for each of those offices, and so on. And that's kind of what's happening here in Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 1822. It's kind of a similar uh, sort of constitutional structure. But I think it's important to recognize that uh, this doesn't really correspond to an, an, the American Constitution. The American Constitution is a constitution... Or the federal government. If we wanted to know how the U.S. system was actually organized in terms of public authority, we not only have to include the authority of the federal government and federal offices, but also state offices and county offices and city offices. Those are all part of the Constitution, the governing Constitution of the United States. Plus, there are a lot of community. There's a lot of forms of community authority that don't uh, that don't come under any kind of uh, legal regulation, churches have authority. Uh, civic leaders have authority that doesn't that wouldn't be included. Uh, and it seems to me that Deuteronomy is uh, structured to include that range of different kinds of authority. Authority and power are widely distributed in the Israelite political system. In the Israelite constitution, there's uh, there are judges that are in the gates. That means they are in cities. We already learned from Deuteronomy that there are elders who are elders of tribes. These are uh, senior members of the tribes who govern tribal affairs. The personnel may overlap with the civic judges, but they are distinct offices because the judges are specifically attached to cities and to gates, uh, and the, the tribal elders are not necessarily so. There's a central sanctuary that's not just a place of worship, but we learn in chapter 17 that the central central sanctuary is also a Kind of, it's not quite a Supreme Court, but it's a uh, it's a place for legal consultation. If you have a difficult case, you can take it to the priests at the central sanctuary or some of the judges at the central sanctuary. Just as in the wilderness, in the wilderness, the elders who were governing Israel could take the hard cases up to Moses and consult with Moses, and Moses would make the decision. You have a similar pattern that's a similar structure that's uh, institutionalized in Deuteronomy, with the central sanctuary playing the role of Moses. Uh, And then you have the permission of a king. That's another focus of authority. He would have his own court. Uh, His authority would uh, not cancel out the local authorities of the judges or the authority of the priests or the authority of the tribal elders, but it would be in addition to that. Uh, And then you have prophets uh, or a prophet specifically that's mentioned at the end of this section, uh, which is kind of of a wild card. The prophets are not... um, institutionalized in Israel in the way they were often institutionalized in other societies. Uh, You don't have, the true prophets are not court prophets typically, Uh, the true prophets are often at odds with the court prophets. Micaiah is at odds with Ahab's prophets. Jeremiah is at odds with the prophets of the kings in Judah toward the end of the kingdom of Judah. Uh, So uh, the prophets represent uh, an intervention of divine authority that comes out from outside those institutionalized structures of authority. So that's another that's another uh, locus of authority. So we have this very complex system, uh, which creates a kind of set of checks and balances that, uh, in some ways, is a uh, is a, uh, a uh, sturdier form of checks and balances than what we have in like the American Constitution. In the American Constitution, we have uh, an executive, a legislative, and a judicial branch, uh, and those three branches are set up so that none of them have absolute authority. Uh, they they can they can uh, block each other's authority in various ways. They can uh, they can check each other's authority in various ways. Uh, but they're all part of the same federal system. And at least in the event over time that federal system has become a a collection of permanent politicians and uh, permanent uh, residents of Washington, permanent uh, professional politicians, all roughly members of the same class, all with similar kinds of interests. Uh, so the checks and balances in that kind of system, at least as it's developed in the 21st century, uh, don't necessarily work because you don't have uh, you don't have many people in Washington who play the role of a prophet, who actually have an independent source of authority that can speak back to speak back to the to the elected authorities. But in in ancient Israel, you have uh, I think I think of uh, John Neville Figgis's idea of a uh, of a pluralist system he he thinks of uh, uh he talks about uh uh kind of an ideal uh an ideal polity as being a community of communities it's not a bunch of individuals who vote for legal representatives instead it's a bunch of it's a collection of smaller communities each of which have their own authority structures each of which have some kind of representation in the public w- public realm and um that provides a a genuine kind of check and balance because here, a, a local judge, a local judge in Israel is not part of the court. So he doesn't have the same interests and uh, and uh, instincts that somebody who's part of the royal court has. He has his own constituency that he's protecting. And so uh, he provides a, a genuine kind of check on royal authority at the local level. Priests are also have their own independent clan and community, their own independent source of authority. Prophets have the same thing. And so, because you have these different, you have a community of communities in Israel, uh, a genuinely pluralistic kind of system, uh, that uh, that provides a kind of check and balance. Of, and uh, and there's no there's no locus of authority that is uh, supposed to come become absolute. And if all the different uh, different authorities in, in in Israel are functioning as they should, they're all kind of limiting and checking one another, and you have a system where where you don't have the you don't have as much possibility of tyranny as you have in a in a system where you don't have those checks and balances.
2: It seems significant that this is classed under the fifth commandment concerning honoring your father and mother. And within the whole of the body of the law, there's this emphasis upon parents, teach your children. At the very outset in chapter six, you have that. And then you have this sense that the family and its structures are the birth of the larger polis. There's the principles of civic life being instilled within the life of the family. And that, it seems to me, is something that maybe we neglect in modern society. We don't consider the way, for instance, that parenting styles can influence the attitudes of a generation and then lead to a particular type of nation or we don't consider the way in which parents are administrators of justice. They're the ones that are their children's first exposure to justice. Their posture towards justice will be learnt within the context of the home. Is, is parenting primarily conditioning children to act in a way that's agreeable to their parents, or is it something that's instilling a sense of moral agency? Um, All of these sorts of questions are questions of vital import for a polity and yet that connection between the polity and the home is often a neglected one
1: yeah not not just neglected but uh, positively opposed i mean if you have certain you have certain uh forms of libertarian thoughts um certain forms of liberalism that any any kind of paternalistic understanding any kind of familiar understanding of social life political life that's a target that's that's precisely what they're opposing I think it's when we think of this section as a kind of constitution, giving, giving, uh, uh, laying out the, the range of different uh, offices and authorities in Israel. I think it's interesting to see where it occurs in the sequence of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy is um, begins with concerned with worship. Uh, the first word. It includes. Uh, it, it begins actually with a historical review of what Israel has been through. It, it begins with worship. It has this uh, section on the central sanctuary where Israel is supposed to bring their sacrifices. There's a section on festivity and the uh, treatment of debtors and slaves in chapter 15. All of those come prior to the setup of authorities and the way that this is organized. If you think about this as a as a kind of public constitution for Israel, the way it's organized, the the public authorities come later in the in the game, as it were. They're not the foundation of Israelite society. The foundation of Israelite society are all these other things that the people do together. Uh, and the public authorities are introduced as authorities that are needed in order to maintain the life that Israel has. That uh, they're, You have this life of festivity, for example, in the, that's described in chapter 16. That life of festivity can go on only if you have Public authorities who can combat invaders for example you can only have a feast if you have if you have stuff to eat and if you have invaders coming in all the time then you're not going to have anything to eat you can't have festivals a festivity can go on only if you have uh, law and order only if people are not preying on other people's property and ruining other people's property there has to be an, an enforcement of of uh, property property rights but the, the public authorities come in in order to preserve a way of life that's already been described and uh, uh they're that they didn't they don't create uh but they're just uh, they're just preserving protecting as i mentioned the uh this section of deuteronomy begins uh in chapter 16 verses 18 through 20 uh lay out the requirement that judges be appointed judges and officers in the gates and that's i was referring to those when i talked about civic authorities these are local authorities they seem to be particularly associated with towns although the town might be considered the center of uh, a region, so law lawsuits, disputes would come to the to the town gates where the judges and officers would adjudicate. And the emphasis of this rule is on what uh, what the judges are not supposed to do. Uh, this uh, it seems to me there's a parallel between the three prohibitions we find in verse nineteen and th- three prohibitions that we find for. Uh, Kings in chapter seventeen, they're not to distort justice. They're not to be partial. The Hebrew says they're not to regard or look at faces, uh, and you're not to take a bribe. And then it ex- explains that a bribe blinds the eyes. So the the rules for judges have to do with they're supposed to resist the various ways that their judgment would be colored and distorted and twisted into injustice. Uh, and uh, if they regard faces, that is, if they give preference to, to uh, people based on their position or status in society, or if they accept bribes, or whether it's monetary bribe or some promise of, uh, of, uh, you know, uh, of uh, honor or status, anything that blinds them to justice, that's their basic work, is to resist those things so that their decisions can be actually decisions that are based on Torah and are actually just decisions
3: you know that that's very much how i read the text peter and i, I wonder if that has um other um uh, repercussions in in the passage so um you shall not plant any tree in the next um or couple of verses uh down beside the altar of the lord your god i, I wonder if that has a similar idea of um kind of creating what's the word split loyalty um conflict of interests, um, etc., you know, having um, being devoted to um, the Lord your God and to an Asherah on, on the side just as sort of being devoted to justice and yet having this bribe dangled in front of you on the other hand. And I wonder if that fits in with your view of, of the prophets. I mean, the king had a huge amount of sway over many people, kind of priests included, and the prophets were to be this... Um, yeah, this, this outside of that, I guess, to some um, I- extent. They, they weren't um, kind of royally supported or funded um, in, in that way, and therefore they could have that kind of impartiality that many forms of, of justice would be um, uh, possibly compromised by.
1: Yeah, I think that is the the public role, the political role of the prophet, is to be the Lord's independent mouthpiece confronting the kings and other authorities. Uh, prophets have other rules, I think, but uh, they're, they're teachers of the people as well. But you, you think about—I uh, make this point in my Kings commentary that when Elijah shows up in First Kings seventeen, he comes out of nowhere. It's uh, structurally it's very distinctive in Kings because Kings is organized by very uh, repetitive and formulaic openings to each of the kings' reign and closings to each king's reign. Uh, but then Elijah doesn't barely has an introduction. There's no correlation between uh, as there is with the kings between Elijah and the the kings that are reigning simultaneously with him he just kind of he's a bolt from heaven and that's that's what the prophets are they're they're uh God's independent uh, uh they they speak Yahweh's independent voice into the into Israel's situation the, uh, James is just just comment on your connection between the Asherah and the preceding that's that's really helpful because that's one of the puzzles of the passage is how the few verses 16, 21 through 17, 1 link up. And divided loyalty, I think that's a really helpful connection to make. Uh, structurally, there does seem to be a connection. I mentioned the, the, triadic, the triadic form of verse 19, where you have these three three prohibitions that are all structured the same way. Not plus a verb, plus an object. Not distort justice. Not regard faces. Not take bribes. Each of the commandments is very pithy and and then you have a series, another series of three prohibitions, in twenty-one verse twenty-one through seventeen one, don't plant asherah, don't set up a sacred pillar, don't sacrifice a blemished animal. So I think you're structurally there does seem to be a play on on those three, two triads, uh, and
4: I, I like the way that you connected the two. Maybe an interesting aside here. When I read this last week, uh, verse eighteen, you shall appoint judges and officers in your town. But, well, what are these officers? Uh, and I'm noticed a couple other places. Um, you have elders, you have judges, you have priests. but what are the officers? Back in Deuteronomy one, I I remember I got a question mark here when we went through this because this is where Moses is appointing leaders and he's describing how he appoints uh, heads of tribes, wise, experienced men. Verse 15 of chapter one, and then heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribe. So these officers can't be military commanders of platoons and companies and brigades and things like that because they're called commanders. Who are these officers? And uh, in the Septuagint, officers, Shoter in Hebrew, Shoterim, is translated as grammateus and so it's fascinating to think that not only are they appointing judges but also scribes uh secretaries um the so these so that with in each of these local court-like situations probably at the gate of their town you'll have someone there who's an officer who's a scribe who's a secretary who's keeping track of the proceedings uh, that certainly seems like the best way to understand this. Otherwise, uh, I don't know what an officer is. Um, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, given you have elders and judges and priests and kings. Um, so, it, so to think about uh, them writing these things, and there's a, there's establishment of precedent uh, with regard to some of these cases, so that an elder or judge or priest could consult these uh, documents uh, about maybe previous cases
1: yeah that's I, I think you're probably right that that refers to scribes recorders court recorders, and it, it fits uh what happens what's said at the end of chapter 17 with regard to the king the king is supposed to copy out the book of the law which is a reference to deuteronomy itself and keep it with him always and read it and know it but it's um there's a permanent fixed record of the law that he's the Torah that he's supposed to keep and, and proclaim. Um, so yeah, there's, a, there's an interesting, there's an interesting, uh, emphasis on, uh, written records as an, as an important feature of a, of, uh, of a just society. Um, and you know, I mean, for obvious reasons, cause you have, uh, uh, people are relying on the memory of cases that have happened in the past. Uh, those memories are are unreliable, plus the people who have those memories uh die and so you're left without any uh, without any living memory of particular uh particular events and, and cases and decisions and so keeping a record that will outlive the people who have made the decisions i think is is uh, is important to keep a continuity of rule and justice
2: yeah an
3: interesting point about that is that the um that term, Jeff, that you're talking about, first crops up in um uh at the start of Exodus, with Pharaoh's um uh taskmasters and, and foreman, it's often um translated. And and so strikes me as interesting that you know that hierarchical structure, if you like, isn't looked at as bad per se. Rather, in Pharaoh's day, it's it's used badly to, you know, exact maximum labor out of people and and in harsh ways and it's kind of then reapplied in deuteronomy but the um uh you know the, the end point the end goal there is is justice and
2: particularly the, the justice of of the lord james has already commented upon this a bit but the place of the laws concerning asherah poles and the um laws going into the beginning of chapter 17 are very puzzling within the context which is the fifth commandment. And this is something that we find at several points within this body of material in chapters 6-26 um, to 26 in Deuteronomy, which is unpacking certain aspects of the commandments in sequence. It seems that the presence of this certainly is jarring, it sticks out to us, and for that reason it invites reflection. And I'll be curious to hear your thoughts. My impression is that this is emphasising the true character of honour and the danger of dishonour. The true character of honouring your father and mother, and by extension authorities, must be consistent with an honouring of the Lord above all. And there is a connection between the adulteration of worship and the adulteration of justice, as James has noted. And I think there's also um a recognition that father and mother and in turn these other authorities act with an authority given to them by the lord and they reflect the authority of the lord and manifest and enact it among his people and yet in a situation where they are um adulterating worship that whole structure of authority becomes perverted and as a result you have a a route into tyranny for instance you have authorities that are not recognizing any authority about themselves, they are not honoring God. And so the honor that they call for themselves is, it becomes a sort of idolatrous if they end up taking the role of idols to themselves. And so maybe the presence of this material here is to bring the second commandment um, into dialogue with the fifth in a way that might help us to recognize the character of true authority as flowing from the Lord, the honor due to parents as something that is supposed to be related to the honor that we have for the Lord.
1: Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Uh, and maybe another layer to that is to think back to uh, uh, what uh, Ralph Smith says in his book on uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, he, he talks about how Deuteronomy is uh, structured by uh, the fifth word, Yahweh as father, uh, and Israel's prosperity and endurance in the land depends on their honoring that father. Uh, so that's, that would be another layer onto that, that you're, you've got uh, uh, these, these various authorities are representing the father of Israel. Uh, and that becomes pretty explicit in chapter 17, where the decisions of uh, certain judges are treated as final, as if they were the words of the Lord himself. I want to point to uh, the uh, verse 19 again, uh, verse 19 and 20, just to make a couple of quick comments about this. Um, uh, the the uh, the bodily organs that are at, uh, in, in view in verse 19 are interesting. A bribe is evil because it blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Um, the fact that it can blind the wise who are known for their open eyes and uh, pervert words of the righteous who are known for their truthful words. That shows the power of the bribe. Uh, the bribe has, the bribe can kind of cancel out wisdom and cancel out righteousness. Uh, but the, it's the eyes and the mouth that are in view. This doesn't refer to the mouth specifically, but uh, the words are coming out of the mouth, which put me in mind of um, obviously Genesis 1, where Yahweh speaks a world into existence by his word and then evaluates with his eyes. He sees and judges things to be good. Uh, and I, I think there's a maybe a hint there in the reference to word and, and sight, a hint that uh, when the judges make decisions, they are, in a sense, uh, repeating on a small scale uh, the work of creation. And uh, that put me in mind in turn of some of the things that Oliver Donovan says, uh, illuminating things he says about the act of judgment, a political act of judgment, uh, an act of judgment by a judge, is declaring some state of affairs to be ended, um, and uh, declaring and uh, and bringing into reality not just not just recognizing but bringing into reality a new state of affairs. So somebody is declared guilty, somebody else is declared innocent that cuts through uh, perhaps a perhaps a think of Solomon with the two prostitutes. You have this confused situation. You don't know who's, who's in the right and who's in the wrong. The decision of the judge cuts through that confusion and, uh, d- and brings an end to that situation of confusion, uh, clarifies the situation and opens up uh, a new, a new, uh, a new situation for both of the prostitutes. Um, uh, particularly, the one who is the mother who goes away with her child. So that that kind of thing happens in every time. Every time a judgment is passed, uh, a judgment is a kind of act of new creation where you're declaring some state of affairs to be ended and a new state of affairs to be uh, beginning. And then the other thing that I wanted to point out was in verse 20. You have almost this ecstatic um, hymnic celebration of justice uh, after you have these three rules about what judges are not to do. Then. Verse twenty starts out with justice. Justice, you are to pursue, uh, that you may live long and possess the land which Yahweh your God is giving you. But this celebration of justice that um, will be will that that will be pursued by judges who obey the rules of verse nineteen, who don't let their judgment be clouded by by the the prominence of the people that they're that they're uh, ruling and by bribes, then justice will be established, and then you the uh, that kind of hymnic quality that puts me in mind of all the, the celebrations of justice that you have in the prophets. Justice rolls down the mountains uh, and brings prosperity to the people. The king bringing justice in Psalm 72 and elsewhere. Uh, and this uh, this uh, a massive emphasis that the, the Bible places on the need for justice and right order in order for uh, Israel to prosper.
4: I wonder, this may be a stretch, but also there's a connection with what we were talking about earlier with the idolatry here in verse 21 is that um, these judges are supposed to this is intensely personal um these judges are supposed to uh have personal agency in in making these decisions and in adjudicating these cases if they're blinded uh, then they almost become like idols um and an idol doesn't do anything, doesn't see anything, doesn't make any decisions, has no personal agency. Uh, It's the worshiper who just gets what he wants or what he thinks he wants by offering a bribe to the idol so that uh, he might, um, well, you know, get what he wants, whether it's a woman or fertility for his crops or whatever it might be. And um, it seems to me possible that um, if, if you start accepting bribes and you're basically, instead of acting like your heavenly father, you have become like an idol, like uh, an Asherah pole or a pillar. But but related to that, whether that's the case or not, um, it is fascinating to me that how much of this whole section here is all about the, the person, the person of the judge, the person of the officer or the king or the priest um there's not a lot of detail there's no detail about how these judges or officers or or, or kings are appointed there's not a lot of practical detail about how they might go about their job exactly uh it's all it, the expectation is if you have the right men then the righteousness the justice uh, will be accomplished, and if they have this kind of moral character, where they can uh, not look at faces and not turn aside to bribes, then we can be confident that that the social fabric is going to be maintained, and and the people of Israel are going to have a um, a consistent and you know a society in which they can live in and expect uh, to do things, and there's there's a social coherence here. But it's all based on the people. It's all based on the person of the priest and the judges and the officers. That's the emphasis. It's not based on, obviously there's particular laws that have to be adjudicated. Even the king is going to have to uh, read and recite, uh, the law, but he's, but that's all for the purpose of applying it, of, of making decisions. And again, we're back to this. We've talked about this before, how Israel is not a uh, a people of of laws only um laws can't do anything if the men who uh implement and uh adjudicate the laws are not morally fit or not wise people and this seems to be just a biblical emphasis all around um you know, you come all the way up into the New Testament with First uh, Timothy three or Titus one. Uh, there, there's 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 not a whole lot in the New Testament about exactly how to to write a book of church order or exactly how a government church government should be, you know, bylaws and constitution and all those details. But there is a lot of emphasis on the men who fulfill whatever position whatever governing position there is in a church whether they're ministers or elders or deacons a lot of emphasis on uh, who they are the quality of their life their their moral uh requirements are are emphasized and, and that that seems to be just all through the bible yeah just
1: uh, one other passage that uh, highlights the same thing in second samuel 8 uh, this is after David becomes king over both uh, over all the tribes. David reigned over all Israel. David uh, did justice and righteousness for all his people. And then what follows in the next few verses is a list of his officers, uh, Joab and Jehoshaphat and Zadok and uh, Ahimelech and so on. Uh, and he does justice and righteousness by having, in his case, he's he's got some of the wrong people in those positions like Joab. But, uh, he's doing justice and righteousness by having a, a well-ordered polity where people are, the right people are assigned responsibility for different activities within, within that polity. And I thought of this too, when I was working on Chronicles, how much of first Chronicles is dealing with David setting up basically duty rosters, lists of officers for priests and other, and other, uh, and his own, his own, uh, royal lands and so on, uh, uh, list lists of officers and duty rosters, what they're supposed to be doing, um, and that's the way that he's ruling his people. And that that seems uh, that doesn't seem very sexy. We have a lot of talk of justice today that doesn't pay much attention to those kinds of uh, those kinds of questions about uh, structure. Uh, chapter seventeen of Deuteronomy is going to bring up questions of procedure. Uh, as as Jeff is emphasizing, it's a question of who's in those positions, the, the quality of the people in those positions. That's how you achieve justice. Uh, the Bible does give this uh, a vision of a just society, and that should inspire us. But um, you can't achieve that just by um, by vision and rhetoric. You have to have you have to have the right kinds of people and the right
3: kinds of structures in place. Jeff, I, I was very interested in your point that um, the blind judge, in that sense, becomes very much like an idol. You know, I mean, a a blind wielder of authority in in a sense is just a force, you know, a power to be manipulated by bribes, yeah, by different kind of um ways, which which is kind of the essence of idolatry and, and even magic in Old Testament terms, isn't it? It's just um a force, a supernatural ability and, and your business, your task as a worshipper is to just turn it to your advantage, etc. You know, and um when you were talking about the the appointment of judges, it it reminds me very much of um uh where is it uh Exodus um eighteen when um is it Jethro who who is um uh telling Moses how he's gonna um, appoint these judges he says look look for able men from among the people men who fear God who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and then place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, etc., and let them judge the people um, at all times. And, and it, it feels that there is a, a continuity between um, that at the very outset of, um, uh, of Israel's history and, and what's going on here.
1: It's intriguing to me too that uh, you have, in one sense, you have kind of a uh, paradoxical situation: what uh, what Israel is supposed, what an Israeli judge is supposed to see and not see. So the first, or rather the second requirement in in, in 1619, you shall not be partial to, um, you shall not be partial, which is you shall not regard faces. So in that sense, you could say judges are, uh, must be blind <laughs> to the uh, position and status of the person that they're judging. Elsewhere, judges are exhorted not to favor the rich, rich or to favor the poor, but to judge righteous judgment. So you judge in favor of the right regardless of regardless of the status of the people you're judging for or against. So in what in one sense, justice is blind. It's blind to faces. But in another sense, as, as uh, you and Jeff have been pointing out, James, the judge can't be blinded. He becomes an idol. And I really like your idea that a blind judge is just a force. It's not authority. It's not coercion or action that's based on uh, a discernment of what is the case or a discernment of what is right. But it's just... It's just a force for the the judges attempting to to achieve what he wills.
2: I do find it curious in that context to reflect upon the fact that they created the golden calf in response to the absence of Moses and the golden calf seems to be an idolatrous replacement, not for the Lord so much as for Moses as the mediator and that relationship between um. Idols and leaders um, seems to be suggested, as, at least as a possibility, by that um, series of events in Exodus thirty-two. Yeah, Anista,
3: just coming back to something you said um, a while back in, in terms of this um, Asherah and the, and the link with parents and and so on. It, it, um, uh, sorry, the link with uh, respecting your parents um, here in this section of Deuteronomy. It, seems interesting to me and i'm not quite sure how to put all this together but i mean um one thing is, is that i think an asherah pole is, from what we know about it is it, it's, it's pictured as this um kind of a a, a wife or, or a concert consort rather to um another god so sort of baal and asherah or, or yahweh and, and asherah would be sort of falsely viewed as as parents and um the, the idea of accepting idolatry does seem somehow to um, detach children from parents. I mean, obviously, one of the more notable places Asherah worship comes in is in um, Ahab and Jezebel's um, time. And there, as Peter was saying, you've got Elijah appearing on, on the scene, and he is... Um, Said. I don't even think it's in Kings isn't it in Malachi you know the, the one who will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and 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 vice versa as if the kind of acceptance of false um or of a, of a different God has um dislocated that that family unit in in some way there, there just seems to be something um something about that
1: yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, that's, that's something, uh, I've observed in working through the historical books of the Old Testament, how often you have these breaches across generations. Um, you have it in Samuel where fathers and sons are estranged from each other or sons are in rebellion against their fathers or sons are out of control of their fathers, all except Saul and Jonathan. That's the only, Saul is the only, the only prominent person in Samuel who has a faithful son, which is, uh, jarring to say the least and then you have the same thing going on in all the histories of the kings even when you have a great king arise he reigns for a generation uh frequently his son is not faithful and and reverses everything that he's done so yeah that that kind of continuity and it's yeah interesting that uh it's definitely connected with idolatry in those uh in those historical instances whatever the whatever the inner connection between those two things is it's <clears throat> idols don't have that power of to cross and to bridge generations.
2: And maybe that ties in to the promise that's associated with the fifth commandment, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. That requires a certain intergenerational dynamic, the um, relationship between distemporaries, the passing on of a covenantal legacy across the generational divide, and the ability also to have confidence that the sacrifices that you make will be honoured by the generation that succeeds and the faith that you express will be continued by them. And here I think um, that is secured in part by um, faithfulness to the Lord and an avoidance of all idolatry.
3: Something that struck me that Alistair said, probably at the very outset of this episode was the um the way in which this general discussion of authority is um kind of included and and um subsumed under the heading of um submission to parents and it just strikes me as interesting the way in which that enjoins us to have a, a consistent view of All the different authority structures that God has appointed and ordained in our world. And not so long ago, I, like other people, I guess, were thinking quite carefully, um, albeit a bit late in my case, but quite carefully about the issue of when it's a good idea for us to disobey um, government authorities. And so this particularly became an issue in terms of lockdown and various mandates that were um, uh, imposed by governments and one of the points actually that I think Alistair made in a talk or article I can't remember which now was the way in which in those arguments we need to be consistent so if we've got an argument for going against a government authority then that's fine but we need to be clear that kind of we shouldn't accept an argument like that that we wouldn't accept in the case of a child disobeying his parent or let's say a, a wife not submitting to the authority of her husband or a, a church member and a church elder or, or 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 something like that and that was something that gave me a lot of pause for thought and caused me to kind of um re Reassess some of the decisions that I, I come to, and um, I, I think thinking back over these um, over this portion of uh, Deuteronomy it's it's then a helpful exercise to kind of think about authority in a consistent way, and, and to make sure that we are actually kind of treating the different authorities that God has instituted in a consistent manner
0: If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.